Our scripture reading for today comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of truth of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. This is the living word of God for us today. Thank you, Jody. I can say that is my wonderful wife. Fun to see her up here this morning. Well, uh, as has already been mentioned, I am excited to start a new series. And because I know we have guests every week, let me just introduce myself. My name is Rob Sweet, and I'm the lead, uh, lead pastor and one of the teaching pastors here at Fellowship. If you're a guest, let me say thanks for being with us. We are grateful that you've chosen to worship with us. There's some information in the worship program you should have gotten when you came in. We'd love to connect with you in any way that we can. Now, we do start a new series, and let me just say this. If you missed the last five weeks, we wrapped up a series last week, a five-week series called A Generous Table, and we talked about the theology of food is the way that I like to think about it and how this idea of a table shows up all throughout Scripture in beautiful ways. And last week, Eric uh, did something I thought was remarkable. He equipped us and sent us out to make our tables God's table. And the idea that our kitchen tables, our dining room tables would be places of blessing for our neighbors. And if you missed last week, I can't encourage you enough, go online, listen to the message, and download the host kit and it has everything you need to be able to host someone at your home, not a high-pressure situation, just a way to get to know our neighbors so that we can be blessings to them in our neighborhoods as well. So I encourage you to go catch up on that if you missed it last week. And if you were here but haven't yet invited the neighbor over, let's commit to that together. I can't wait to hear some of the stories that God's going to do of us just inviting people over to dinner. Uh, I want to give you an analogy to start this series. And by the way, Colossians is one of my very favorite books in the whole Bible, and I've been anticipating getting to this for quite a number of months. And I want to begin with this analogy. For the last hundred years or so, physicists have been trying to find a simple idea or a simple theory or set of equations that could explain everything in the universe, from the smallest particles to the, the greatest um, stars and planets in our universe. And this idea, this, this kind of almost mythical quest has been you know, referred to as the theory of everything. Is there a way that there is a single set of equations that can tie everything together? And the reason that this you know, quest for this theory has come up is because in the last hundred years, scientists have made tremendous discoveries at both the massive end scale of the universe on that side of the spectrum and the tiny scale 
end of the spectrum. So on the massive scale, Einstein's general uh, theory of relativity, um, gravity and space-time continuum and all those kinds of things. At the smallest end of the spectrum, you have quantum physics and quantum mechanics and subatomic particles and you know, things are much smaller than we ever dreamed they were. And there are these discoveries that have been happening at both ends of the spectrum. The problem is the rules that govern the large end don't work in the small end and vice versa. So the quest is on, is there a single theory of everything that could combine what we know to be true about these particles and what we know to be true about these great giant masses? Einstein devoted the last 30 years of his life trying to reconcile these two together and was not ultimately able to. Stephen Hawking devoted his career and his life to discovering this theory of everything. Many other scientists as well. Now we begin with this because the best way to understand Colossians is it is Paul's Theory of everything. It is Paul's attempt to come up with a single unifying idea that can bring together everything literally in the cosmos. He's going to cover that from the grandest things in the whole universe to the smallest things of even a single human heart. It all centers around a single focal point. And, and Paul's synthesis of everything that there is into this single unifying crystalline concept is Paul's theory of everything. Now, let's talk a little bit about this man, Paul, who wrote this letter. He was a brilliant man. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of Paul, if you think of him as a, a saint, if you think of him as, you know, a, as an author of the New Testament. He, he was those things in a sense, but God gave him a brilliant mind. That's one of the first things that should come to your mind when you think of Paul. He was smart. In fact, before his conversion, he was on track to be the, the highest, um, smartest, most brilliant Hebrew theologian of his time. That was the track that he was on. God converted him and harnessed the power of his brain when then Paul became, or Saul translated into Paul, converted into Paul. He became the greatest theologian, Christian theologian of the first century, potentially of all of human history up till now. Paul may have had the greatest theological mind. As you know, he wrote a big chunk of our New Testament. Here is what I think Paul's greatest contribution to human thought the way that he brought together all his knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, which he was an expert in, and his remarkable insight about the life of Jesus Christ and the simplicity of the gospel. And he brought those two things together. And here's Paul's thesis, his theory of everything. At the center of it all, there is a person, Paul said. Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3.11. So his thesis in this little letter we're going to be studying is at the grandest scale of the universe, the whole universe, Jesus is at the center. And at the smallest end of the scale, the, the, a single human heart fully alive, Jesus is at the center. He is the center of all things. And as he's going to go on, this book is going to go from theological to practical because he's going to explain if Jesus indeed is at the center of all things, then he should be at the center of our things as well. So he's going to talk about our identity in Christ, our families and how those are meant to be centered on God, our marriages, our relationships with one another, our own work, our culture, our hope for the future. It all centers on a person, the person of Jesus Christ. 
Now, we're going to be in this book for quite some time together, a number of months, so we want to give you a tool. I'm going to go ahead and ask the ushers to start handing these out right now, if you could. I'm excited to give you this. This is the ESV Illustrated Journal. Each one of you is going to get a copy of this this morning. We just wanted to put it in your hands. Uh, we've, we've bought these. We got a group discount, and we thought this would be a fantastic way to walk through this book together. So everyone's going to get a copy of this, and if you normally worship with someone who's not with you today, take an extra one for them, but don't take more than one copy for yourself. This is your copy. I'd encourage you to put your name in it. That way, if you lose it, we can get it back to you because we won't be able to replace it for you once you have a copy. But we do want every single person that calls Fellowship Bible Church their home church to have one of these. And while they're being passed out, let me just say you're going to need this journal this morning and you're going to need a pen. So if you do not have a pen, raise your hand and we'll make sure that we get a pen to you. The ushers have pens as well. So everybody get a journal. Everybody make sure you have a pen. If you don't get a, a, a pen or you need one, raise your hand and we'll make sure we get you a pen this morning. While these are being passed out, let me just tell you a little bit about what's in here. At the simplest level, all this is, and this is the reason I love these journals, you have on the left page, the text of scripture straight from God's word. There's no commentary. There's no extra notes. It's just the text of the scripture from the ESV translation, which is the translation we use. And on the right side of the page, it's a blank page, perfect for taking notes. So we're going to walk through this verse by verse as we do here at Fellowship, our style of teaching, and you're going to have an opportunity to take notes on that right page. There's also fairly large margins. You can write in the margin, you can draw on the margin, you can mark up the books. In fact, I'm going to teach you a little bit this morning about how to mark up this book so that you can make the most of your Bible study. Now, some of you are artistically minded I want to encourage you to engage that part of you in this. In fact, one of the great things about this journal is that there's plenty of space for you to doodle. And I don't know what you were told growing up. Maybe you were told, don't draw in church. We're going to bust that out. A lot of times, studies have shown your brain engages best when you're doodling, when you're drawing. So if you're artistically minded or you like to doodle, go for it. There's a lot of space, a lot of note spaces, a lot of margin spaces for you to do that. I think that's a great way to engage the text this morning. If you're more linearly minded and you're an outliner, you're a note taker, a lot of space for that this morning as well. Again, we're going to teach you some techniques as we go about how to study God's word. I want to address one particular group uh, audience in here. If you're a, a, a kid or you're, you're a young person in the room, and I've got you know, several of them right here, a couple of them on the front row, I want to encourage you to engage this with us. And you're welcome to take notes however you'd like. You're welcome to draw. When I was growing up, I grew up in a church very similar to Fellowship, and uh, my dad would always tell me, you know, Rob, feel free to draw if you want to, you know, during the message, because I'd get a little bored. I know that would never happen around here with, with uh, our teaching, right? Just kidding. But dad would say, feel free to draw, but try to draw something that's connected to the message or the, the scripture or something in the room. And so if you're a young person here today, I'll encourage you to do that today as well. And by the way, when in doubt, you can always draw Jesus because he's on literally every single page. So we're going to engage God's word together. And by the way, bring this back with you every week. So keep it with your Bible. Keep it in your car. Keep it somewhere handy. Mark it up at church. Mark it up at home. But bring it back every single week. In fact, this can be the Bible that you bring with you over the next number of months as we walk through Colossians together. All right, with all that said, let's open up to the first official page. There's a preface and some other things. But turn to the page where it says, The Letter of Paul to the Colossians. And we're going to jump in right there. Um, oh, I forgot one thing. You'll notice this has Philemon as well. We're going to cover Philemon 
as a part of this series. Both of these letters would have been hand-delivered. They're both written by Paul to the church at Colossae. Uh, the, the book of Colossians was to the whole church. The book of Philemon, tiny little two-page letter, uh, is to us an individual and copied to the church, which was a brilliant move by Paul. We'll talk about why he did that when we get there. But Colossians and Philemon together. All right, let's jump in. Chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So anytime you start a new book, it's important to know a little bit about the author and the audience, etc. We've already talked about the author. Now notice here, Paul says it's, the letter is from him and Timothy. So you might, if you're taking notes, you might put, you know, the author colon Paul and Timothy, or maybe put Timothy in parentheses if you'd like to. Timothy was probably the scribe. He was probably, Paul was probably dictating the letter to Timothy. There are times in the book where Paul will use the, the plural pronoun we, and there are other times he'll use the singular pronoun I. But he, when he says we, he's referring to himself and Timothy. The audience is the church at Colossae. This was a new church. We're going to show you on a map uh, where it was. In fact, I was thinking, if only I had like a big circular screen somewhere, we could put a globe on the screen. Oh, this will do. We're going to zoom in here on, uh, you see Italy, the boot kind of up there up, uh, on the left of the screen. Here, here's, get you oriented a little bit. You have the Mediterranean Sea down there in the bottom. You can see Rome, the boot of Italy. You have Ephesus, which would have been on the shore. And then Colossae was about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. Now, the reason we wanted to show you both Rome and Ephesus is this letter would have been written by Paul either from Rome or from Ephesus. All we know for sure is Paul wrote it when he was imprisoned because there's a reference in chapter four where he's talking about remember my chains. We know, we know that he's imprisoned. He was imprisoned in Rome a couple of times. We believe he was also under house arrest in Ephesus at some point in time. Majority of scholarship says it was probably Rome, but there's some good arguments for Ephesus as well, so we're not quite sure, but we're gonna say it was written by Paul in Rome or Ephesus. The date would have been somewhere around 60 A.D., and if it was in Rome, it would have been 60. If it was in Ephesus, it would have been uh, sometime in the 50s. The significance of this date is think about how recent that was compared to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was 30 years, a little less than 30 years. That's not a lot of time. You know, so can you remember the early 90s? You know, most of us can, unless you're a really young person. That's about the length of distance that would have been from the death and resurrection of Christ to the time that Paul was writing this letter. It's remarkable how soon that was after the actual events of Christ. So we talked about the author, the audience, where it was written from, the date. Now, finally, the theme. And I know I'm going fast through this because there's so much material we want to cover this morning. Here's the theme, keeping it very simple. The theme of this letter is Jesus Christ is the center of all things. That's what we've titled our series, The Center of All Things. No need to get complicated. Jesus Christ is the center of all things. That's the theme of this letter. Now, by my count, Colossians contains 63 direct references to Jesus Christ in only 95 verses. 63 references, 95 verses. It's a letter about Jesus. Makes sense if it's Paul's theory of everything and at the center of the theory of everything is a person, Jesus Christ. Here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning and then throughout our study. 
Every time you see a direct reference to Jesus, either his name, his title, or a pronoun that we know is directly referring to Jesus, I'm gonna encourage you to put a box around that just so it'll jump off the page. We'll show you on the screen the first of these. You can follow along and mark up your book just as we are here. So in verse one, you see Christ Jesus. In verse two, Christ, of course, Christ is this title. It means Messiah. Verse three, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse four, Jesus Christ Jesus. Verse seven, Christ. One, two, three, four, five. So five references in these first eight verses that we're gonna cover this morning. And just draw a little box around each of those. Throughout the series, anytime you see a direct reference to Jesus, put a box around it. In fact, I'm gonna encourage you to do one better. Go home this week Read the whole letter cover to cover. It will only take you 15 minutes. I timed it. And go ahead and mark these references to Jesus all throughout. And you'll, you'll, you'll find about 63 of them as you go. That's your homework, so to speak, if you want to engage that for this week. So what's the theme? Jesus Christ is the center of all things. Now that we've gotten past this introductory greeting and blessing that Paul has, let's dive into the letter proper, and we're gonna cover to begin with verses three through five. We'll, we'll stop midway through verse five. Let's look at it together. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We'll pause right there for a minute. Notice the dominant emotion that Paul has toward this church. Gratitude, thanksgiving, thankfulness. Every time he thinks of them, every time he prays for them, he's saying his heart is experiencing gratitude. We always thank God. Now, notice that the thanks goes to God. He doesn't thank the Colossians. He's not, I thank you, thank you for following Jesus. No, no, no. All praise, all glory, are all honor goes to God. But here's what Paul is doing. He is grateful for the Colossians. He is grateful to God. Isn't it a wonderful thought to think about that you might be the source of thanksgiving from someone to God because of you? That's what's going on here. Wouldn't it be a great goal in life, by the way? Talk about a life mission or a life goal. You know, something along these lines. God, would you allow my life to be such that people would thank you because of something I said or something I did or something that I exhibited? Would you get praise and glory and thanksgiving, God, but through something that, that little me might say or do? What a beautiful way to think about your life. And here are these people, by the way, that Paul had never met before. We'll talk about this later. He'd never been to Colossae but he had heard about their faith in Jesus Christ. And just that is causing Paul to glorify and praise and thank God. In these first few verses, you might have caught a familiar triad of words that Paul loves to put together. Faith, hope, and love. In this case, he puts them in a different order than we're accustomed to hearing. He, he writes faith first, then love, then hope. I want to encourage you to circle those three words, you'll find the word faith in verse four, also the word love in verse four, and you'll find the word hope in verse five. So just go ahead and circle those. We'll put that on the screen, already on the screen as well. So you've got boxes around direct references to Jesus. You've got circles around uh, faith, love, and hope. Literally, in every one of Paul's letters, 
these three ideas are going to come up, faith, hope, and love. The most you know, famous of that, 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. In Colossians 1, Paul's going to talk about them a little bit differently than that. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, uh, faith and love come from hope laid up for you in heaven. So he's connecting faith and love together, and he's saying that your hope in Christ is the root cause behind the other two. Uh, I think what he's getting after is he's saying, because you've anchored your hope in something solid, even though it's invisible, their hope is in something solid. As opposed to the flimsy things you can actually see with your eyes that aren't worthy to bear the weight of your hope, because you've anchored your hope in something solid, love is exploding out of you and faith is exploding out of you. You see the fruit of the tree. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Rather than putting our hope in things that cannot satisfy our hope, is in what our eyes cannot yet see, but what is more sure and more solid. The Colossians' faith and love and hope have stirred Paul to glorify God. Let's keep on going. We'll finish out verse five and go into verse six. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Here's Paul's first reference to the gospel. And let's, let's do something, let's mark that up. Let's double underline the gospel. We'll put that on the screen as well. So it's right, two little lines under the gospel. It's obviously a, a massive theme for Paul in, in all of his letters. This is no exception at all. You likely know the gospel is, it sounds to us like a Christian code, but in that day, it simply means good news. This is the good news. Well, the good news about what? In the New Testament, this word is a reference to the news that Jesus Christ is God and King who came to earth announcing the arrival of the long-awaited kingdom of God. That's the gospel. Jesus is God and King. He's come to earth announcing the long-awaited arrival of this kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Well, it's the place where the whole creation is being turned right side up again. The kingdom of God is the redemption of all things. The kingdom of God is the happy ending that is emerging even now. And why is it emerging even now? Because the king is here, because Jesus has arrived. That's why he begins his ministry saying, you know, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's arriving, it's bursting in. Now it's a long arrival, isn't it? So far, 2,000 years. And we're still waiting for the culmination, the, the fullness. Um, but the, the good news and the implications of that for us is that through the life, death, and resurrection of the king of this kingdom, people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, Gentile, Jew alike, all people can be reconciled back to God and become citizens of this kingdom where everything's being made right again. Thank you, Nikki. That's beautiful. It's beautiful news. It is good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss this analogy that Paul uses when he talks about the gospel. He uses this in several places in the New Testament. It's the analogy of, of the seed. He's describing the gospel to a seed. Did you catch that? You know, he's talking about it bearing fruit. Now, I have here in my pocket 
a little seed, and it's so small you likely can't even see it. What amazes me about seeds is that embedded in this tiny little object is all the genetic potential of a massive, beautiful tree. I want to put this image on the screen. Now, standing beneath this gigantic tree, you understand and realize the power, the beauty, and, and honestly, the, the provision of a tree. Think, think about everything that lives in a tree. You've got insects, you've got a whole e ecosystem. You've got birds that make their homes in there. You've got swirls that make their homes in there. Uh, think about the life of a tree. You know, that tree, I guarantee you, has been alive in, longer than anybody in this room. It's going to outlive us as well. Trees are bigger than us. Trees are taller than us. Uh, trees live longer than us. And what Paul is saying is the gospel's like that. It's like a little bitty seed. Once it gets planted in the, in a, the soil of a human heart, it can grow and produce this amazing, uh, great thing. And not just a single tree, but in this seed, again, is the potential for this tree to multiply itself and create an entire forest. As the fruit of that tree or the, the seed of that tree drops down, maybe picked up by animals or the wind and it, it spreads out and then other trees grow up and then those trees spread out and other trees grow up and those trees... Look at this. This is how the gospel spreads. And, and Paul is saying it's just a little bitty seed. It's planted in the human heart by faith. By the way, faith comes from God as the Spirit softens our heart. You know, you're, you're not born with, with soft soil in your heart. You're born with hard soil. You know, most of us that are parents, all of us that are parents, you realize that. It's like, the kids are not born perfect. And then over time, by God's grace, we pray that the Spirit would soften their hearts and that the gospel would be planted inside, and not just in children and adults as well. The seed of the gospel begins to grow and that's how we're changed. Now, most Christians tend to think the gospel gets me into heaven, but isn't it my obedience and discipline that change me? Oh no, that is not what Paul teaches. Paul teaches that obedience and discipline, which by the way are wonderful, but they flow out of a changed heart. They don't produce a changed heart. You cannot discipline your way to a changed heart. You cannot obey your way into a changed heart. You see, the gospel is a seed planted in your heart that over time grows and changes you, and some of the fruit that flows out is obedience and discipline. Think of it this way. Transformation, true life transformation, which is what we all want, we all hope for is a result of truth taking root. That's how we grow. That's how we're changed. And over time, old patterns of thought and belief are disrupted and replaced with new patterns of thought and belief. And at the core of all of these new patterns of thought and belief is a single idea, a seed of truth. And here it is, that you are loved unconditionally by the only one in the universe whose love ultimately matters. That's the seed of the gospel. Now think about the power of that single idea to change a life over time. You see this. 
This is the gospel. This is the seed. The gospel renews your mind, and a renewed mind is the catalyst for a changed life. I want to put all this together in a simple drawing, which I want to encourage you to draw in the margin to the right side of verse 6. We'll put it on the screen. Just see, you can just watch it and then draw it afterward. You see a, a little tree. Now watch this. There's some fruit on that tree. And then there's the roots that go down and there's a seed underneath that earth. We're gonna label it faith, love, that's the fruit. Hope is the trunk of the tree and the seed is the gospel. If you can understand that little image, you've got the first eight verses of Colossians. And in many ways, you have the whole letter. The seed buried under the earth grows up and produces in you hope. Hope that you have a future. Hope that you're actually loved. Hopefully that you are worthy. Not because of anything you did. In fact, that's the beauty of the gospel. It says you can't earn it, which means you can't lose it. God can't love you any more than he already does. God can't love you any less than he already does. Do you understand the power of that single thought to change you? As you stop striving, as you stop working, and you just say, oh my goodness, I can rest. And as I rest, the fruit can grow up and out of me. I want to give us a thought about how this seed spread in this early church at Colossae. Look at our final two verses together of our text, verses seven and eight. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made it known to us, made known to us your love in the spirit. Here's the origin story of this church. Their seed was planted by a man named Epaphras. He was from Colossae. He heard the gospel in some other city as Paul was preaching. He went back to his hometown with the seed and he planted the seed in the ground and he let it grow. And now, because of the fruit that it has produced, Paul the evangelist, hundreds of miles away in Rome or possibly Ephesus, is thanking God, praising God and encouraging this young church. This is how the movement of Jesus has been spreading for 2,000 years. So here is a final thought for us before we celebrate the Lord's table together. Each of us is on a search for our own unifying theory of everything. We're on a quest to find something that matters most, something that makes sense of our lives, something solid we can live for and if needed, die for. The most important question you may ever ask is, where do you put your hope? Where will you find that thing? What are you gonna hope in for life and death? When you're young, you put your hope in the security and approval of mom and dad. That's what you look to first. That's what you look to most. When you're a teenager, you seek it in the acceptance of your peers. When you're in college or out of high school, you put your hope in 
discovering who you are and what you're good at. When you're a young adult, your hope is in starting a career and possibly finding love. When you're in midlife, your hope centers around whatever your personal definition of success is, either career-related or family-related or financially related. When you're an older adult, your hope shifts to grandchildren or retirement or leaving a legacy. All good things, none of them strong enough to hold your hope. None of them solid enough to hold your life together. None of them enough to truly make sense of your entire existence. You see, when you put your hope in, in all those things, good things throughout life that we all tend to naturally gravitate for, for a sense of life, the result is over time, if you put your full weight on those things, you will crush them or they will crush you. None can bear the weight of being at the center of your universe. There is only one who can. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We're gonna be memorizing that passage not just because it's great theology, but because it's great practice, you see. Our desire for this series is that we would all take a closer look at Jesus. Whether you've believed in him for your whole lifetime, just about, or, or whether you're a skeptic or an unbeliever in the room, we would all take a closer look at Jesus, that we'd be more awed by him. We'd see him as more beautiful, that we'd see him as more compelling, more powerful, more capable of occupying the center point of our lives. And with that in mind, I want to ask the ushers if they would start passing out the Lord's table to us this morning. And I want to give a brief word to the unbelievers and the skeptics that may be in the room. The offer on the table, literally this morning, here's the offer. It's a simple truth to build your life around. A seed that can grow and bear fruit. And the seed is this, that in the person of Jesus Christ, you are far more loved than you ever imagined. And that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he can and in some sense must become the center point of your life because he's the only thing worthy to carry the weight, to hold the weight. All it takes is faith. And if you have the faith to believe this morning, that faith is a gift by God, then when the tray comes, I want you to take the bread and take the cup by faith. You are receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ by faith this morning. It's the faith that heals you. Not the bread, not the cup. It's the faith that saves you, not those things. But take the bread, take the cup as a symbol of that. For all of us who have put our faith in Jesus long time ago, perhaps, or this morning for the first time, I want to encourage you this way as you take the bread, as you take the cup. And by the way, don't, don't eat and drink yet. Just hold on to it. I want to encourage you this way. It does not do to simply include Jesus among the collection of things in your life that you look to for fullness. It does not do just to include him there in that collection. He is the center. And when we allow him to occupy that space in our lives, 
that's when life takes on meaning. And we find the center point around which everything else finds its proper place.